I'm going to begin reading in the first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 15. You follow along as I read out loud. After this, David's son Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand before the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no one designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, Absalom would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, and saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Then the king said to him, Go in peace. So Absalom arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. With, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilmanite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. And the conspiracy against David grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us. Quickly and bring us ruin down on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. When we left David last week... He had been rebuked by Nathan the prophet because of his sin with Bathsheba. David repented of that sin and he experienced the complete forgiveness of God. Now today, we see David running for his life. What happened? How did we get here? How did we get from there last week where he's forgiven to today he's running for his life? Driven from the throne. As you read the next few chapters in 2 Samuel, it sounds like a soap opera. When you read this, you say, this stuff could never happen. This is just TV. Well, let's summarize the story 
briefly. Chapter 12 last week where we left off was where David was rebuked by Nathan. Chapter 13, we see David's oldest son, Amnon. Amnon has a half-sister named Tamar, and he falls in love with her. She's a beautiful young girl. But he can't have her because she's his half-sister. So he cooks up a scheme with his best friend to entice her to come into his bedroom as he pretends to be sick, and then he rapes her. After he rapes her, he's disgusted by her and he sends her away. And the text says that the, as much love as he had before, now he had that much hate for her. His brother, Tamar's full brother, is Absalom. Absalom comes along and to get revenge on his half-brother for raping his sister, he kills him. And then Absalom flees for his life because he's killed the king's son. Chapter 14. David is now tricked into letting his son, the murderer, come back to Jerusalem. He said, all right, he can come back but I, I never want to see him again. David allows him to come back, but he says, you can stay in your house, but don't come into my presence. After a period of time, Absalom gets tired of staying at home, and he wants to talk to the king. He wants the king to let him have some more freedom. So he sends to his friend Joab, he says, come and talk to me. Joab doesn't come. So he sends a second time. Come talk to me so I can tell you to go to my dad. He doesn't come. So Absalom has his servants burn the man's fields to the ground. The man comes and says, why did you do that? He said, well, you wouldn't come and talk to me. I'm wondering today if maybe we should do that to people who don't answer our text messages. <laughs> that would get you people to respond to me. Chapter 15. After two years of laying low, Absalom then begins to start sucking up to the people. He would sit at the city gate, and you know how people come in and they start complaining, and he'd say, oh, that's a terrible story. I wish the king would do something about this. I wish the king would make me a judge, and, and I would take care of you. And when people would come up, he'd give them a big hug and show them some love. And he would begin to win more and more people over to himself. The text says that he stole the hearts of the people. For four years he lays the groundwork to do this. Until finally he asks dad, can I go make a sacrifice? You know, God wants me to, to fulfill my vow. It's all a scheme. And as soon as he gets out of town, he has people blow trumpets all through the land and say, Absalom is king, not David. Word gets back to David now. Chapter 15, 16, and 17, the remainder of 15 in the next two chapters, David is running for his life. 
Because message came back to him. They said, listen, if you're going to get, you better get while the getting is good because Absalom's coming and he's going to kill you. He's going to take your throne away from you. David actually has to leave his home. Hightail it out of town. Finally, when we get to chapter 18, the forces of David and the forces of Absalom meet together in battle. And David's men win. David's troops defeat Absalom's army and Absalom himself is killed. David is allowed then to return to Jerusalem to ascend the throne again and he lives out the rest of his life as the king of Israel. What do we learn from this dysfunctional family? There's a messed up bunch of kids here, isn't it? What do we learn from David and his experience with his children? Now, I want you to pay attention this morning because I'm going to say some things that may make you uncomfortable. Whenever we start talking about our kids, we start getting funny, don't we? Okay? There's a simple rule when I preach, when anyone preaches. If the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't apply, then it doesn't apply. That's between you and God how you apply this. Okay? What do we learn from David and his kids? Number one. Number one, our sin will trickle down to our children. Often at a greater level than what we were doing. How do you know that your sin, which you're keeping at this level, your children will also be able to keep it at that level? How do you know they won't take it? Further. David took Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife. Now there's nothing in the text that says that he took her by force. Everything seems to indicate that it was consensual. But how does this play out in David's son's life? Amnon forces himself on his half-sister and rapes her. Later on, when Absalom declares himself king, he sleeps with David's concubines as a way to stick his thumb in his dad's eye. Scripture tells us in the Old Testament that our sin is visited to the third and the fourth generation. We see how our sins play out in the lives of our kids. We do not take seriously today what I call the transgenerational effect of sin, how our sin plays out generation after generation. For example, when David was unable to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, remember? He was trying to cover up his sin by getting Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that the child would be thought to be his and not David's. When that didn't work and Uriah wouldn't go home, we're told that the next day, 
David came up with the plan to have Uriah killed the next day. What we see in Absalom's life, though, is when his sister was raped, he waited two years before he killed his brother. What David did was premeditated murder. What his son did was premeditated for two years as he does this. He thought about this. He planned it. He was, I mean, this was for two years. I'm going to get that guy for what he did to my sister. Where did Absalom learn this kind of treachery? From his dad. David, another example, he sees Bathsheba and in his lust, he sends for her and he takes her. Amnon sees his sister and he lusts after her and he plans a rape. Before he rapes her, she says, brother, don't do this. Speak to the king and the king will give you permission to marry me. Just don't defile me. And he raped her anyway. She offered herself to him. She said, let's do this right. He said, no. Because he can't wait to have her. He can't wait to do it right. It sounds like he lacks self-control like his father lacks self-control, doesn't it? David now is reaping what he has sown. Do you see how his sexual sin plays out in the sexual sins of his son? What? You don't think they heard the stories about what dad had done? Please. Nathan, last week in chapter 12, even told David that part of the consequences of his sin would be out of his own house. He would have trouble. And that's what we see today. The first thing we learn is our sins are usually magnified in the lives of our children. Number two, this one's the one that gets tough, folks. We lose objectivity when it comes to our own kids. You know what I'm talking about? We stop being objective when it comes to the sins of our own kids. Absalom kills his brother. And he tries to take over the throne from his own dad. And what's David's response? Oh, boys will be boys. You know, it happens. David doesn't do anything. Absalom actually tries to take the throne from his own father. And if he had the chance, he would have killed his dad to get the throne. And what does David do when Absalom is killed? He weeps and publicly mourns for this son who tried to kill him. 
Remember last week when Nathan told the story about the man who stole the sheep? It was a story about David, but David didn't know that. It was a story about a stolen sheep, and David was furious. He said, that man ought to be killed for stealing a sheep. But when David's daughter is raped by his son, what's he do? Nothing. He gets angry. But does nothing. And then when his other son murders the first son who raped his daughter, what does he do? He gets angry and he sentences him to house arrest. Ooh. It wasn't even that bad because he wasn't even limited to his own house. David basically said, you're under house arrest and by that I mean don't come and see me. You can go anywhere you want, just don't come into the palace. Ooh, that's tough. For murder, right? Chapter 13, verse 21, says, When David heard all these things, he was very angry. He was angry that his daughter was raped? Some manuscripts actually add one line that says he was angry, but he didn't do anything because he loved his son. You don't love your daughter that was raped? We can lose our perspective when it comes to our children. After Absalom is killed, David mourns. He was grieving so much over this son that had been killed, the son who tried to take over his throne, that Joab had to come and check him on it. How many times do we see parents, when they see somebody else's kid do it, oh, that kid's a brat. Until your kid does it. Well, it's different. Why is it that when it's our kids that are doing it, we don't see it the same way? How many parents do we see today who are absolutely coddling their children in their sin? David was guilty of letting his son get away with murder. And how does David's permissiveness play out? This son that he lets get away with murder tries to kill him. David failed to discipline his son in the matter of Tamar, and now it's costing him. You see, not disciplining our children might seem like it's the loving thing to do. We want to teach our children compassion and forgiveness and all that other stuff, when really it's because we lack the courage to discipline them. And we let them get away with sin more and more and more, Thinking, oh, they'll learn their lesson. How? How are they going to learn their lesson when there are no consequences to their sin? Not disciplining our children is not loving, no matter what we might think. It leads to more and more rebellion. And then when Absalom, who killed his brother and tried to take over the throne from his dad, gets killed, David is just beside himself grieving. 
And his top general, Joab, who fought the battle to keep David on the throne, came to him and he basically said, what's the matter with you? David's like, what are you talking about? He says, I'm just grieving for my son. That's normal, right? And Joab looked at him and said, you don't realize how many people risk their life so that you might stay on the throne. And he said, you know what? By the way you're acting, you would have rather that we all died and Absalom would still be alive. And he said, I guarantee you, if you don't straighten up, you will lose this kingdom. Because people have risked their life for you. And this is how you thank them. How many times do we see parents who refuse to deal with the sin in their children's lives? And we see parents today who will lose every friend they've got so they can stand by their child in their sin. We lose our objectivity when it comes to our kids. And sometimes one kid. We'll even choose one kid over other, our other children. Number three, what do we learn in this story? We learn that our sin can be wonderfully and totally Forgiven by God. Stick with me. But God's forgiveness of our sin does not mean there won't be consequences that play out in the lives of our children. Our sin, which God has forgiven, has lingering consequences. As much as we like to convince ourselves that it stops with us, our kids often pick up our sin and take it forward with a vengeance. So what's our takeaway today? What's, what, are, what are we to learn about how we live our lives today with regard to our sin and with regard to our children? Number one, how many times have you heard people say this or you've said this in their sin? I'm not hurting anybody but myself. I'm sure David thought that when he was committing adultery with Bathsheba. I'm not hurting anybody. Two consenting adults, Uriah's not even home. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. It ends up getting him killed, doesn't it? Well, my sin's not hurting anybody but myself. That is a lie. You know what the problem is? In our sin, we want that to be true. We want to convince ourselves that nobody is going to be affected by our sin. And rarely, when we're sinning, are we thinking about how this is going to hurt our kids. Because all we want at that moment is our sin. One of the saddest experiences in life is when you look over and you see your child playing out your sin that you started. Doing the very things that they learned from you. For the sake of discussion this morning. For the sake of effect. Don't just look at your sin today from your perspective. Look at your sin from the perspective of your kids. And how it's hurting them. How is your sin today going to be affecting your children decades from now? Or possibly even your grandchildren decades 
from now. Think about this one. Take, for example, smoking. How many kids pick up smoking because they see it in their parents or their grandparents? Come on. What's going to happen to them in 40 years or 50 years when they get cancer? When your grandchildren are standing around the bed of your children grieving them because they're dying of cancer. When you're smoking today, you're not thinking about how it's going to hurt your grandchildren, are you? But that sin just keeps playing out. 50 years from now, you might not even be alive. But your legacy of sin will be continuing to hurt people closest to you. Number three. Our takeaway today is sin usually leaves a ripple of consequences that continues out. That ripple of consequences. Absalom goes up against David and tries to take over the throne. There's this big battle between the men of David and the men of Absalom. And the text tells us that 20,000 men died in that battle. Two, zero, 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 zero. 20,000 men died because one son says, I want to be king. Understand, he might have become king anyway if he'd played his cards differently and waited for dad to die. We don't know how that would have played out. But he didn't want to wait. He wanted it now. The consequences of our sin often ripple out and have a terrible effect on many people around us. Number four. This one breaks my heart when I read it. Turn over to chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. This is what we're told after Absalom has died. 2 Samuel 18.18 reads like this. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom built this tower thingy. That's the technical term for it. Because he didn't have any kids. No one to carry on his name. So he builds a tower and names it after himself. Same thing. Kid, tower, you know. When I saw that, I'm thinking, how sad to not have the blessing of a child to carry on your name so you build a tower and you name it after yourself. Right? There's, there, there's my tower, Absalom Jr. <laughs> you do understand, people, our children are our legacy. What are you going to do in your lifetime 
that's going to be more significant than your children. Really. Honestly. What are you going to do that's going to outlast you like your children are going to outlast you? Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and it keeps going. What are we doing, really, that's going to outlast our kids? They're our legacy. They're it. And Absalom lives a life of absolute just treachery. Doing what he wants because he wants power. And that is his legacy. We remember him more for his sin than for what he did with his kids. Your children are your legacy. Your grandchildren are your legacy. What are you doing with that? Number five, this is where it gets exciting, at least I think so. Better late than never. Are you with me? Some of us have done a better job of raising our kids than others, but none of us has done it perfectly. Amen? Amen. Better late than never. Even though we may not have done it right up to this point, we can say, you know what, that changes now. My children are a blessing from God. And because of that, they're a huge responsibility. And I want to take that responsibility seriously. That's why I love in our church now seeing parents who are dragging these little snot-nosed kids along behind them. You know how important that is? To make sure that your children know how important the God stuff is. And when I see parents who are not taking their responsibility to make sure their kids are in church every week, my question is, what are you thinking? Who is going to raise your children with godly values when you teach them that godly stuff doesn't matter? And don't be surprised when they get old enough and they say, you know what, you didn't take me to church much, I'm not going to go to church at all. Why should they? You told them basically by the way you raised them that church isn't that important, that the God stuff is not that important. And you know what they finally say? I heard you. You didn't think it was that important? I agree with you. It's not important. And your sin is just magnified in their life, and you raise them in church just a little bit, your grandkids won't be in church at all. Because your kids will wash their hands of church and say it's not that important. My parents told me that much by the way they raised me. Our kids are our legacy. And they're a tremendous blessing, but they're also a tremendous responsibility. The question is, what are you going to do with that responsibility. Let's pray.